Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. We are uh, starting a new series today called What Faith Looks Like. And that word is one that uh, is not always defined well uh, by us or by the world around us. Uh, typically, we, we think of faith as, as something that doesn't impact the real world. Uh, we might place the idea of, of having faith in something in, in the realm of the hypothetical. I, I have faith that there does exist in the world a nation called France, even though I've never been there for myself. Uh, there's very little about my day-to-day existence that hinges on the existence of, of the nation of France, but it is still out there as, as something that I generally assume to be true about the world. I have faith uh, that this stage is not going to cave in on me while I'm up here this morning. I'm, I feel pretty good about it. And, and now that sort of faith is a real commitment I'm currently acting on. I, I wouldn't be standing up here right now if I felt like at any given moment this, this stage was going to cave in. Uh, but at the same time, it, it's not really a commitment that I'm, that I'm conscious of. It's more of an underlying reality that, that allows me to, to focus on other things that I'm more concerned with uh, while I'm up here this morning. And those are, are two examples of, of ways in which the idea of faith is, is typically defined. And none of those are, are wrong, and, and how, neither of those are wrong in how we think about having faith in things in our day-to-day world, but it's not how Scripture talks about this idea of faith. And and for that reason, it's important for us to keep in mind that when we think about this word of faith that shows up so often in Scripture, shows up so often in our own own words that we do not impose onto God's Word the the ways that our world around us typically thinks about this idea of faith, because, because doing so can cause all sorts of problems for us. We might come to think of faith in God as something like the faith I have in the existence of the nation of France. It's something I generally accept to be the case based on what everyone around me has, has told me. It, I generally assume to be, to be true. I don't think there's a grand global conspiracy that the entire world is together trying to convince me that there exists a nation of France when there actually doesn't. That'd be a lot of work if, if that was the case. I go along with what seems to be the consensus among my, fa- my family, the people I spend the most time around. If everyone else thinks it's true, then it must be true, probably, even if it doesn't make any real difference in my day-to-day life. Or you might think of faith in God like my faith in, in this stage right now. It's there, but and it's you know foundational, I guess, but it's not making any huge difference at the end of the day. I'm, that allows me to worry about other things that are more important, that are more central to what what's going on, things that, are, that, that my faith in God doesn't, is not allowed to interfere with or contradict. And neither of those understandings of faith are present when the Bible talks about our faith in God. Faith in Scripture is tied to action. And hear me when I say that. I'm not saying that our action produces our faith. I'm not saying that, that uh, we are required to do enough to remain in right standing for God, before God. Scripture does not allow for that sort of thinking either. But what Scripture does allow for is space for a faith that responds to who God is and what He has called us to be. 
We, we are not called to a faith that is passive or secondary, but one that is, a, that is the foundation of who we are. We're not called to a faith that essentially boils down to checking a box or buying an insurance policy a long time ago so that we can have a reward way off in the future without making any tangible difference in the present. We are called to put our faith, our trust, our allegiance in what Jesus has done for us. And as we make that our primary commitment, we respond to what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection so that we might participate in life with our God now, as opposed to waiting, waiting for it to come about sometime way off in the future. So with that in mind, we'll be looking at this idea of faith from now up until Easter, not as a way to beat you over the head with trying to, trying to work harder and be better or anything like that, but as a way to look at examples of what it looks like to respond to what God has done so that we might get in on what God is doing for ourselves. My heart in this series is not that you would walk out of here each week between now and Easter thinking, boy, I guess i got to work harder at having faith, but that you would walk out of here each week thinking, I wonder what God could do in my life if I open myself up more to what he is doing in and around me. So that in that we might all be drawn into deeper life with our God. And as we do that, I think, or at least I hope, what we'll find is that this series is a complement to the series that we've just come out of. Over the course of making our way through the blessings of the book of Revelation, we've seen what true blessing looks like, what the things are that God honors within his kingdom. And so as we make our way into this series, we won't necessarily find the same language being used each week or, or things like that, but we, what we will find are portraits of a blessed life before God. We'll see stories recorded across Scripture that offer glimpses of what it looks like to respond to who God is and what he has done, and in that we find God's blessing. And our guide as we do that over the course of the series is going to be Hebrews chapter 11. And you've maybe heard Hebrews 11 referred to before as the hall of faith, the collection of, of all the heroes of the Old Testament who demonstrated great faith in God. And that title's not wrong necessarily, but I do think it needs to be clarified a little bit. Hebrews 11 is not a list of heroes of the Old Testament just because the author of Hebrews wanted to give us a list of their favorite Old Testament characters. They're included in here for the specific purpose of calling God's people to follow in their footsteps. This chapter is not a museum where we are invited to read about the great accomplishments of the past, but a roadmap from which we can find our bearings as we see where God leads us in our own day. We see that as the perspective taken by the author of Hebrews as, as they begin this section of the book. This chapter is not an out-of-the-blue summary of the Old Testament. It is an illustration to come alongside that this book is making. The book of Hebrews is a group of Christians who are weary, uh, who are wondering if following Jesus really is all it's cracked up to be, if it's really worth it, wondering if maybe they should just go back to the life they knew before they became followers of Jesus. And this book gives argument after argument for the superiority of Jesus, showing its readers Jesus is better than any other hope, any other salvation we might want to run to or trust in. And so within that flow of thought across the entire book, as we get to the end of chapter 10, we read in Hebrews 10, verses 36 to 39, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For, and then the author quotes from the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament, chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, it says, For in just a little while he who is coming will come and will not delay, and but my, and but my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. 
But we do not shrink, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Chapter 10 concludes with a call for perseverance, for God's people to not shrink back, but to live by faith. And so, as the text makes the turn from that into the very next verse, Hebrews 11, 1, the author begins their appeal to this long list of examples to flesh out what it means to live by faith. And that begins with a definition of faith. In Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, they say, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Hebrews calls us to be people who live by faith and then defines for us what faith means by showing us it is a confidence and assurance in the present about what the future holds. That is our foundation as God's people. That's the same foundation our predecessors in the faith worked off of as they lived in response to God. And we see that over the course of this chapter with the repetition of that phrase, by faith. Because of who God is. Because of how He has made Himself known. Because of what it means to live in response to who He is as His people. Those who have gone before us lived by faith. Responding to God's call by putting their trust their allegiance in Him first and foremost, trusting in, trusting that even if they couldn't see the end of the story in their own day, God would be faithful and would one day bring His promises to complete fulfillment. These are the examples that we have of what it means to live as God's people. Over the course of this series, we'll see example after example of what it looks like to live as God's people in the present in light of the realities to come in the future. And we're not going to be able to cover every single name and example that gets mentioned in this chapter, but we're going to do the best that we can to cover as many as we can. We're going to kick that off today by looking at the story of Abel, who gets mentioned in Hebrews 11.4, and whose story is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 4. If you remember back to the early chapters of Genesis, you might remember Genesis 1 and 2 covers creation. And then Genesis chapter 3 covers the fall, Adam and Eve being deceived by the serpent, uh, sinning for the first time, and, and God's curse uh, in light of that, and, and Adam and Eve being cast out of the perfection of the Garden of Eden. So then we begin Genesis chapter 4, and we're told that Adam and Eve gave birth to two sons, Cain and Abel. We're told Abel keeps flocks, and Cain works the soil, and, th- and things seem simple enough at first. Like, like maybe even though uh, creation has fallen, we have these two brothers, and maybe they'll make things right. They'll be able to settle into an easy enough life. What we find as we go along is that the realities from Genesis 3 will cast a long shadow. And the reality of living in a fallen world means that not only does creation no longer function as it should, but relationships no longer function as they should either. So we get the story in Genesis 4, verses 3 to 12, which we'll read now. It says, In the course of time, Cain brought, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother, Abel, to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't 
I don't know, he replied, am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. It's never really explained to us why Cain and Abel make these offerings, what guidelines they've had ahead of time as far as they should go about making these offerings. But what we do find is a difference between what the two brothers offer, even though the text doesn't go into much detail about the difference between the two. But if you notice there in verse 3, it says, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil. But in verse 4, it says that Abel brought an offering of the fat portions of the firstborn of his flock. And that extra explanation of Abel's offering is the difference between the two, which the book of Hebrews clarifies its summary of this story. It's not a matter of God preferring meat to vegetables, although that would be a pretty great sermon if it was. It's also not a matter of God having to choose one or the other. He had, there had to be a winner, and that's what God, God settled on. Cain brought an offering of, of, of an average uh, amount of produce, whatever was lying around. Abel came with the best he had to offer. And for that reason, God looks with favor on the offering of Abel, but does not look upon Cain's with favor. And in the midst of Abel's offering and and the acceptance of Abel's offering, excuse me, and the rejection of Cain's offering, there is still an offer of grace extended to Cain. There in verses 6 and 7, God places two options before him. Either do what is right, offer God what is best instead of just whatever is around, and be accepted, or fall victim to that predator of sin that is now stalking humanity because of the rebellion of his parents and desires to devour as many people as is possible. when faced with this choice, Cain continues down the path he's already started upon. Instead of recognizing his error, repenting, experiencing the offer of life with God that is placed before him, he responds by murdering his brother. Instead of learning from a positive example, he eliminates that example altogether. And in response to this, God, as patient with Cain as he was with his parents Adam and Eve when they sinned in chapter 3, comes to Cain with a question. Verse 9, where is your brother Abel. Cain responds with a question of his own, asking if if he's his brother's keeper, if he's supposed to be responsible or accountable for the actions, the whereabouts of his brother Abel, which is a little ironic considering that he is accountable for the fact that he's taken his brother's life. Instead of a relationship with God or his brother, Cain and his rebellion has lost both. And as he did in the of the reality of sin in chapter 3, God also here comes to the one who had sinned and describes the consequences of their actions, the reality that will now characterize their life because of their sin. Because Cain has taken his brother's life, he's cursed. Abel was righteous, and because of that righteousness, creation itself sides with Abel. Because of that, Cain will no longer be able to work the soil as he had done. Like the curse pronounced over Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, this act of sin has not made life better, but has made it worse. No more will Cain be able to work the soil, produce a crop for it. Instead, he will be a wanderer on the earth. 
aimlessly traveling around the rest of the days of his life, never able to find a place to settle down, to find peace, to find rest, a place to call home. Cain had tried to deal with the consequences of not doing what God required, but he has made things worse for himself. And the consequences from that will color the rest of his earthly existence. As we move forward in the story of Genesis, we see humanity continue to spiral downward. The promise from the serpent when Adam and Eve ate the fruit in Genesis chapter 3 was that they would be like God. They would be able to do things on their own without his help. But what we find is that humanity breaks away from God, attempting to become like him, continue to look less and less like him, not more. And we'll see that continue next week as Rick's going to be looking at what Hebrews 11 says about Noah. But we see the next step in that progression here in chapter 4. Cain and Abel were both to recognize God for who he truly was, offering him what he was worthy to receive. And Cain refused. And when the shortcomings of his actions were exposed, he reacted by taking his brother's life instead of recognizing God for who he was and responding in kind. And Abel, the brother who did as God required, is rewarded for his righteousness by losing his life. So as we come back to look at this story through the lens of Hebrews, it's, in, it's important to remember the story in Genesis 4 itself, to remember what's highlighted from it by the author of Hebrews and how that intersects with the experience of, of the audience to which the book of Hebrews is written and how all of that together speaks to us as we listen to its words today. Here's how the book of Hebrews summarizes Genesis chapter 4. It says, By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did, By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. If you notice, as we read Genesis 4 and Hebrews 11, 4 alongside one another, they emphasize different things. Cain is the main character of Genesis 4, as the text deals with with his sin and the consequences of that sin. Hebrews 11 barely gives Cain the time of day. Hebrews 11 is more concerned with the actions of Abel, how he demonstrates his trust and faith in God, and how even though that might look like loss in the short term, it leads to victory in the long term. The book of Hebrews is written to people who are dealing with the potential, if not the reality, of suffering for doing right. And as much as we might intellectually know that we live in a world where sometimes you can do everything right and still get a bad result, it's sometimes hard to remember that when we are the one who has done everything right, and is experiencing that bad result. It's easy to tell someone else that they're, when they're going through something difficult that everything's going to work out some way or another. It's much harder to tell that to ourselves when we are going through it. And so as the author of Hebrews writes to this audience who has come to believe in Jesus as the, the Christ, the Messiah, the one they were hoping for, but has now seen their life get more difficult, not easier, since they've made that commitment, the author of Hebrews points them back to the story of Abel. For those facing the reality of difficulty because of their allegiance to Jesus, the author reminds them that they follow in the footsteps of Abel. Just as God vindicates Abel in Genesis 4, so also will he vindicate them as they respond by faith to the God who has called them. Which brings me to the main point I want to make this morning. If you hear nothing else, hear this. Faith offers God what is best. If you take Genesis 4 simply on its own, Abel would seem like he lost out. I mean, if 
you read this chapter closely, you notice we never hear a word from Abel's mouth across this story. He does what is right. His reward for it is to be murdered by his own brother, and the story doesn't even give him a chance to defend himself, to explain his actions, anything like that. It's all concerned with his brother and the consequences for his actions. And yet the story doesn't end at Genesis 4. As Hebrews says, Abel might not have uttered a single word in the story of Scripture, but his story still speaks even down to today. He might have lost his life in the short term, but he was vindicated by God in the long term, as God's people always are. God's people offer God what is best because he is worthy of it as a response to what he has done. Abel receives very little in the short term of the narrative of Genesis 4, but in the long term he receives the commendation of God himself because of his faith that was displayed through offering God what was best. And that act and the reward it receives from God testifies to the reader, uh, readers of Hebrews and testifies all the way down to our day today. The story of Abel is called upon as a reminder that God has not abandoned us. And therefore we can trust in him and offer him what he is due. In the face of suffering and difficulty, God does not neglect us or fall asleep on the job. Just as he was present with Abel, he is present with us. And therefore, God is worthy of our faith, worthy of our trust, worthy of our allegiance. God is with us, and therefore, as we respond, we offer God our best. Knowing that even if we cannot see the whole picture in our own day, we will one day receive God's reward. If God truly is who he claims to be, he deserves nothing short of our best. There's an old hymn that says, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. We will never be able to perfectly summarize or explain all that our God has done for us in sending his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins so that we might be made new. And if that is the case, that the perfect, infinite God of the universe has done more for us than we could ever fully understand, there is no other rational response to what he has done than to offer him everything we have as we respond in faith to what he has done for us. And as we respond with that sort of faith of what God has done, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you it is always going to look great and perfect and make all perfect sense from our limited perspective. And some of you know this better than I do. Some of you could stand up here and tell stories of responding in faith by giving God your best with your finances. And from a limited perspective, that might not seem all that rational. I mean, you're going to give 10% or more of everything that you have to your church? I mean, wouldn't you want to keep that for yourself? Spend that on, put it back in savings, spend it on more stuff for yourself? And from our perspective, that might look like you're missing out. That you could have more things if you just kept it and were more selfish with your possessions. But if the perspective of faith says that if Jesus was willing to die for me, and if all my money and my stuff is temporary, why would I, wouldn't I want to use what God has given me by giving it back to him so that it can go towards the work of his kingdom? Some of you could stand up here and tell stories about giving God your best with your time. 
And from a limited perspective, it might look strange to be here early on a Sunday morning to get ready to, to serve, whether that's up here with the worship team or the tech team or to teach Sunday school or whatever it might be. It might look strange to use your vacation days and the summers to go take a week off of work so that you can spend a week at Pine Haven with a bunch of kids and get no rest at all. It might look strange to use ministry or to use retirement for ministry instead of for relaxation. But the perspective of faith says that if all of history and existence hinges on the fact that Jesus resurrected from the dead and he is truly the only hope from the, for the world, then it makes no sense to spend our time anywhere else other than on the cause of the kingdom. Some of you could tell stories of what it looks like to respond in faith with career choices or with, where, uh, where, with your kids' career choices. From a limited perspective, it might not make sense to pursue jobs in ministry. I mean, shouldn't you want your kids to go into something that pays a little better, something where they can have more, more money so they can take care of you when you're old? Shouldn't you want to uh, use your potential for other things, things that are more exciting and, and better uh, benefits, more self-actualization, whatever it might be? But the perspective of faith says that if true life comes only through the message of Jesus, then the only thing that matters is to make the kingdom our first priority in what we do with our lives, whether that's through going into ministry or, or encouraging our kids to do that, whether that is going into some uh, kind of job where wherever we might be, no matter what we're doing, we're doing it with the gifts God has given us for the sake of, of displaying who God is to the world around us. And those are all just small examples, but they are all portraits of what it means to offer God our best. Offering God what is best in faith might not always look like it makes sense from our perspective, but living by faith brings with it our trust in God, our knowledge that He can be trusted, and therefore, even if we don't see the entire picture, we can know that God will vindicate us and that faith will one day be rewarded. And we're able to have that perspective because of what Jesus has done. Jesus does not demand from us He has not already given us. Like Abel, Jesus suffered unjustly. Like Abel, he did God's will, and doing that created tension with others around him. And like Abel, that ultimately cost Jesus his life as he went to the cross. But he went through all of that. He offered God his best so that the curses of sin pronounced in the early chapters of Genesis might be undone for all time for you and for me. Jesus offered God what is best so that we might be saved, and therefore, our faith in God responds by offering God what is best so that we might experience life with the God who has given us his best. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who has spared no expense and sent your, your one and only Son to die on the cross for our sins so that we might have life with you. So, Father, as we respond in faith, we ask that you would give us strength, give us boldness, give us wisdom for how we can do that well where we are. As your people, Father, we desire to offer you our best in everything. So no matter where we go out from here, no matter what walk of life we find ourselves in, Father, through your Holy Spirit, give us insight, give us wisdom for how we might offer you our best. We thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you. For Jesus, we, we thank you for your with us. 
as we respond in faith. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.